0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Last summer, Beyond Your Newsfeed featured an episode, a very interesting episode with the Political Science Department's environmental politics expert, Professor Casey Stevens. The episode was on a report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, as it's known to the the, the knowledgeable, the, the report that offered the latest physical evidence on the status of atmospheric carbon emissions. Since that time, the IPCC has released two additional reports, the most recent on April 1st, this time focusing on what might be done to mitigate climate change. To bring us up to date on these new reports and the international politics surrounding the issue, I've invited Professor Stevens back to the podcast to enlighten us on where the global politics of climate change stand at present. Professor Casey Stevens, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you very much for having me. I think a good place to begin, Casey, if you could review a little bit for our listeners who may have missed the earlier episode, Uh, what the IPCC is, and what is the uh, genesis of these reports?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, was founded in the late 1980s as an effort to establish a scientific basis in order to guide climate change negotiations. The climate change uh, negotiations had not really ramped up by that point. And so they were trying to get an initial first report on the state of the science as well as options for actors to take uh, in order to lead up to those uh, negotiations that were going to occur in the uh, early 1990s. Uh, That initial report was a success. It brought together uh, hundreds at that point of top climate scientists to deliver a state of the field report and had a large impact on the negotiations that would eventually become the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. They followed this up with a second report in the uh, uh, mid-1990s, which once again paved the way for the Kyoto Protocol in 1997. Uh, This followed up with a third, fourth, and fifth uh, climate change reports that happened in the late 1990s, And the early 2000s, the fifth was in uh, uh, 2013, uh, 2014, so almost a decade ago. Um, With the failure of the Kyoto Protocol regime really to take off and its expiration in uh, uh, the mid-2000s, they really sat down and said, okay, we're going to need a significant new uh, state of the field so they organized the sixth uh, uh, climate change report, which was disrupted a little bit by uh, the COVID pandemic, but they separated into three things that they were going to bring together uh, at this point now, thousands of scientists from very different fields together to deliver a, a, a consensus report on where the science stands, what uh, uh, issues do they have consensus on, as well as what policy recommendations uh, will achieve goals that... Uh, Our political leaders have set. So they divided this up into three working groups. The first was the physical science basis. This is the one we talked about last time. The big takeaway there is from the the, the science on uh, uh, atmospheric chemistry and um, uh, physical science, human-caused warming is happening and is causing severe impacts already. And there was really a, a, a significant advancement over earlier reports and their ability to specifically target what impacts we're already seeing from the uh, 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 one degree of warming that we've already seen uh, uh, up until this point. The second report was on adaptation, vulnerability, and impacts. And this was really looking at the impacts in a broader sense, trying to figure out, okay, where is uh, uh, the impact from climate change going to be felt? Where is it going to impact people? Where are the impacts not going to happen? What the big takeaway from that report was is that uh, systems are already being pushed beyond their adaptation point. So they're already uh, uh, suffering various consequences that they cannot adjust to. This is only going to increase as time goes on, the report found, and the most vulnerable people are going to feel the effects first. The most re- uh, recent working group, uh, uh, which, as you noted, uh, was released on April, uh, early April, focused on mitigation and mitigation politics. And this was exciting because this is where the, the political scientists really became a, a, a major part of the field. Not only there were uh, 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 representatives from uh, uh, lots of different uh, uh, fields, e- economics, uh, climate science, uh, geography, et cetera, but really focused on what are the current policies for climate change that have sort of been promised, which ones have already been implemented, what are they going to achieve, uh, and what more is gonna be necessary in order to achieve uh, uh, the climate targets that we've set in the Paris Agreement of 1.5 degrees warming, or additional sort of goals that we've sort
0: of set. Okay, great, thanks for that rundown. Um, Can we uh, back up, and before we talk about the most recent report, the second one, which came out in February, right? Yeah. And, then, and that's the one that that dealt with impacts. That's how the climate change is impacting communities and how people's lives are being affected. Absolutely. Could you give us maybe some details from that report about what kinds of impacts that uh, the scientists were perceiving?
1: Yeah, so they really did a, a excellent sort of um, – a framework of viewing this as adaptation. And so looking at various uh, institutions, whether that be communities, whether that be uh, organizations, whether that be supply chains, and looking at how much ability do they have to adapt to uh, both just physical warming as well as the secondary impacts of uh, uh, flooding, drought, uh, 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 hurricanes, other climate disruptions, And then trying to trace, okay, how much is is sort of an available adaptation they can take without much cost? How much is going to be an adaptation that sort of gets beyond that? And how much is going to be the system sort of breaking down? And they found that there's already a number of systems, mostly around the most vulnerable people, so people in developing countries, people in rural communities, people in food insecure situations, which are already sort of passing this point of adaptation. Uh, and, 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 and having the impacts of climate change delivered quite significantly. Um, and yeah, the, so the impacts are already being felt. They're most uh, predominantly in, in developing countries and other uh, uh, vulnerable uh, situations. But this is only going to increase as time goes on. And the one of their big takeaways is that there's not an institution that they could identify that is going to be insulated from climate impacts.
0: Right. So impact could be things like the increased, what seems to be the increased forest fires that we're seeing, which are clearly very disruptive to a lot of communities. And, a- and the like.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, it, it could be any one of a number of sort of impacts right. of this. And as we've all sort of uh, got accustomed to supply chain disruptions over the past year, it's a really good way to think about just the sort of adaptation that your system has when there's small changes as a result of forest fires, as a result of flooding, as a result of drought, um, or now as a result of, of of warfare, that can cause ripple effects throughout large parts of the economy. Uh, some people are going to be largely able to to sort of change their procedures around that. Other people are not. And that's really what that report focused on.
0: Okay. All right. And so then the most recent one. Uh, so tell us a little more about that. What Are the key takeaways that we should pay attention to in this most most recent?
1: So it's a very large report and and once again is written by people with very different disciplinary backgrounds and approaches to the question. And so probably of all three reports, this is the most wide ranging of of, of topics and and views. Uh, But what I found most important is really four big takeaways. Uh, first off, it delivered very clearly that the current policies adopted and the current promises made at Glasgow's climate summit, uh, as well as at other sort of climate uh, uh, efforts, are insufficient to achieving a, a a world where we only see warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius.
0: Yeah, the Glasgow summit was the summit just last October. Yeah, correct? It's,
1: it's part of the uh, UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's their most recent sort of uh, high-profile uh, conference of the parties,
0: right? Yeah. Right, and and uh, Greta Thunberg was there. That was probably, uh, perhaps, maybe, unfortunately, some of the big news coming out of that conference was her her comment that it was blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, she was uh, taking the 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 people attending there to task for not doing more right
1: at the negotiations even a lot of the people that were very active and somewhat satisfied with the progress that they made and they did make some points of progress we can talk about uh really did feel like it let a lot of issues down going into even the last like uh, hour of the conference they had an agreement by countries uh, all members on a phase out of coal power where they said we're going to get rid of coal power generation uh, and literally at the last minute, China and India came in and said, well, we don't want phase out, we want phase down to be the uh, uh, term. And so people that had worked for years on, on getting a particular fossil fuel listed as something that needed to be replaced uh, suddenly got a cold shower sort of dumped on their head in the last yeah. minute. Yeah. So even the people inside of it were, were let down at the end by it in a variety of ways. Uh, but like most of these meetings, it achieved some things and left a lot of stuff uh, uh, unfulfilled. So uh, I'm not sure I'd say blah, 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 but uh, uh, some significant uh, problems need to still be dealt with. Right. right. And that's part of the, the, the uh, most recent working group report is just all the stuff that's promised is going to gonna blow us past 1.5 degrees warming this century. And is putting us on a track for somewhere in the lines of... Uh, I think 1.8 to 2.4 degrees warming in this century, um, and isn't going to see the peak yet. This is one of the big things is uh, even if all the promises made at the Glasgow summit uh, uh, um, are are fulfilled, we're still not gonna see the peak of emissions for a number of years, probably even after 2030, uh, which means that not only are we going to see additional warming this century, but also additional warming after that. So that's the big uh, takeaway. Simply, the, the what we've what we've done so far is not going to address the problem. The promises made, which uh, some countries promise more than they can probably achieve, still is not going to get us there. So we need to ramp up ambition and uh, 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 keep that sort of focused. The second takeaway that I took from the report is really this focus on re- reaching the inflection point. We need to be able to clearly see when uh, emissions, both of carbon as well as methane and other greenhouse gases, is going to reach its peak, so we can start trending that arrow downwards. And the report was quite uh, 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 persistent that we have not reached that inflection point, and none of the the sort of differences, none of the promises that have been made are going to get us to that point anytime before 2050. Um and the physical science basis, once again, is that we need to reach that as soon as possible, and, and probably before 2030, in order to have a chance at a 1.5 degree world. And so the report estimated that if we do nothing, we're looking at about a 3.2 degree warming by 2100. Um, and once again, that's that's the difference between about 6 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's not a, a, a small temperature shift. Uh, that's a, a, a large uh, shift. Um, Some of the less dire sort of uh, findings are that um, we're likely to see compound hazards as climate impacts stress natural and political systems around the world. And so one of the big things that this emphasized, once again bringing in geographers, political scientists, and economists, is not just the physical impacts or the forest fires and floods and droughts and and other climate impacts, but also the stresses this is going to put on institutions, the stresses this is going to put on Uh, political systems, which is likely to lead to compound hazards where uh, 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 significant climate disruptions actually undermine climate efforts and get us further off track from achieving uh, uh, these modest sort of goals. But finally, the the sort of positive thing that's in this report is climate resilient adaptation, is what they call it, is possible. It's possible at multiple scales, so you can do it in local areas. You can do it at a, a city level. You can do it at a country level where you really emphasize adaptation that's aiming for climate resilience. It's possible, and it's already showing positive results, and looks like it has the ability to scale very widely to different uh, uh, environments, different uh, economic uh, uh, situations, and to different levels of of sort of action.
0: And what would be some examples of these kinds of adaptations?
1: So they, they list a whole host of them. And I mean, it's, it's in one chapter. It's largely just a list of these climate resilient adaptations that are possible. Uh, but there's a whole host of them. Uh, uh, one of the more popular ones right now is uh, Climate Victory Gardens. Uh, this is a movement that's taking off because it's uh, starting to be summer and people are starting to think about garden. But actually taking it really seriously of a, 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 a garden that doesn't just aim to provide you food, doesn't just aim to, to sort of uh, provide beauty in, in, in lots of cases, but aims to be an integrated part of climate effort. So you emphasize pollinators, you, you emphasize certain species that can uh, do a variety of different things, and you try to avoid pesticides and other forms of uh, 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 control, which has a climate in impact. At large levels, it means uh, sort of building uh, uh, mass transportation systems that not only are able to move people, but also, once again, able to deal with disruptions, able to deal with uh, 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 severe sort of shocks to the system, and still uh, uh, sort of provide that effectively. And then at the national economy level, it's making economies that are not going to see significant uh, uh, disruption, as a result of a variety of climate impacts, but is gonna be able to sort of maintain uh, the the well-being of all people, even in, in, in uh, uh, interrupted situations.
0: So, does the report talk about progress towards uh, bringing on renewable energy? Uh, what's, what's its conclusions about? Uh, how are we doing in terms of using solar energy or Uh, wind power and the like?
1: Yeah, so it does a lot of of, of focus on renewable energy, how that's going, how that's been adopted. And of course, that's one of the major parts of most countries' climate pledges in uh, 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 the Glasgow summit and other things is increasing their renewable energy mix. Uh, the report finds, and I, I, uh, this is supported by multiple other sources, uh, uh, and, and, and once again, they rely upon other sources. They don't do their own data analysis. They, they collect what, what is sort of widely known, uh, is the renewable prices are continuing to decline and, and going down to, to really record levels. Um, so for example, onshore wind is currently the cheapest source of energy that's available. The median price of that across multiple countries is about $50 per megawatt hour. Uh, Natural gas is $71, coal is $88, Um, and this is something we've seen across different renewable sort of forms. And so renewable prices are are decreasing and and, and, uh, uh, um, uh, having a significant impact across various other levels. Uh, It really comes down to how to expand that and make that a larger share of countries' energy profiles. And so uh, uh, multiple reports have sort of uh, centered around, it is absolutely feasible with current technology, absolutely feasible with current infrastructure to reach two-thirds renewable for electricity power generation by 2030. So two-thirds of all power could come from renewable energies without any new technological breakthroughs, without any large infrastructure sort of investments, uh, but it is going to require $1 trillion globally, really, to, to sort of push the, the, the effort there. Um, and that's, that's $1 trillion. It's spread across all countries of the world. Uh, but it's largely making sure that countries don't build the coal infrastructure in the first place, don't build the, the natural gas infrastructure in the first place. Because once you build that infrastructure, it becomes much harder to transition right. away than it does to just simply build renewables in the first place.
0: Right. But that's a big problem, isn't it, Professor Stevens? Uh, There's kind of a uh, uh, a tendency uh, to sort of continue on doing what people have done in the past. And that involves, you know, upgrading uh, the traditional uh, energy infrastructure. Uh, I've noticed in my own neighborhood uh, recently, the the natural gas utility uh, has gone around and uh, put in all new uh, uh, gas lines, you know, under the street. And, and as they were doing that, all I could think was uh, uh, this looks like an investment that really shouldn't be happening, that we should be investing in renewables instead of upgrading all these pipes. So how do we navigate that switch to get, uh, or more broadly, uh, this one trillion dollars Uh, that's needed to create the infrastructure and the the expansion of things like wind power or solar power, Uh, that trillion dollars could come instead of investing in drilling new oil wells. But we have all the infrastructure for going out and drilling new oil wells. Uh, That's sort of the, the inertia would lead us to do more of that. How do we stop that? I mean, stop the investments in fossil fuels and redirect that investment into these renewables.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and because we're political scientists, of course, it's not just the the infrastructure that gets this inertia, but it's also the the power uh, and, and who gets the benefits and who then wants to retain those benefits in a variety of ways. Um, once again, the, this, this is a different question depending upon what part of the world you're sort of looking at. So in developing countries, it's largely about uh, 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 providing them with the the capital and the, the funding and the, the, the uh, loss sort of payments uh, to allow them to choose a, a renewable energy infrastructure in the first place, um, and and that's not easy because there's a lot of um, interest in, in in sort of. Uh, 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 fossil fuel energy, there's a lot of infrastructure that's not possible to build in in those particular contexts. And so how do you do that in developing countries is a different question than how you do it in the United States, Western Europe, Japan, and stuff like that. Uh, In those countries, what you really need to do is you really need to to focus on uh, spending funds which emphasize climate resilience once again. Putting in new uh, roads and new uh, 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 natural gas lines uh, makes sense in in, in the current world where you're not accounting for climate change, but once you start accounting for climate change, uh, you do want to sort of shift that funding to other forms of of resources. Uh, And just once again, like uh, 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 renewable costs have declined rapidly around the world. One of them that is still the highest is residential residential solar photovoltaic. So installing the solar panels on the the roofs, uh, that's still more expensive than than most other forms of of, of cost. Uh, uh, Tax incentives, other forms of uh, uh, expertise and installation guidance could really do a lot to bring that down and make for a much more active sort of condition. Uh, but the, the, the problem there is that the utilities don't really want that because uh, then people will get off the grid, which they, they need to maintain the grid and maintain the rents that they're sort of collecting. And so it's, it's partially about getting the, the right resources, but it's also partially then about the political question of how you, how you change who's sort of uh, getting the benefits from the situation. And that's, of course, much more uh, challenging, as we both know.
0: Yeah, and the fossil fuel industry is there uh, essentially uh, pushing the more traditional route instead of uh, the investment in renewables.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we see this today. The the report came out in The Wall Street Journal about what uh, Manchin is sort of asking from the Biden administration uh, in order for him to agree to a climate legislation. And and the agreement is essentially expanding fossil fuel infrastructure, so uh, expanding drilling, expanding um, uh, export permits for uh, natural gas, so that natural gas can flow more uh, quickly uh, to, for, to to other markets, and and once again, this is something that uh, may appear necessary because of the Ukraine situation. It may appear easy uh, uh, politically, uh, but it's setting up that infrastructure that's really going to make 2030 a difficult year to get that inflection point down, uh, and, and, and really going to have significant long-term consequences.
0: Right. And, and in fact, it's really providing us more expensive energy, because the energy that's going to result from that investment is going to cost more. Uh, the opponents of renewables often raise, talk about the economic cost of renewables. But you're saying, given the way that the cost of those renewable sources are plummeting, uh, it's really economically advantageous to invest in renewables rather than fossil fuels, but the fossil fuel industry protecting its own interest, is in fact uh, promoting investments in the more expensive energy so it's so it's, so it's actually hurting the economy that it's hurting the economic the standard of living of Americans uh, that uh, as as well as uh, preventing uh, the, the transition to renewables.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're t- everybody's talking about inflation. It's a, a, a big concern, of course, uh, as we've sort of seen it. Uh, the number one sort of sector in which we saw inflation over the past year uh, was, um, let me just get this right, uh, it was home fuel heating. It went up 70% since March of 2021. Right. Uh, second is airline fares, which went up 23%, uh, which also have a large climate impact. But... Uh, if you were off the grid or on a renewable energy, you wouldn't have seen this 70% energy spike. It's just something that would not have occurred uh, if you were on renewables for for house heating or anything like that. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, it's not only more costly, but it's also making you vulnerable to shocks in a variety of different ways. Right. And, of course, the whole system is built upon not including the climate change impacts. And so one of the big things that developing countries and particularly low-lying island states have been pushing for is they want a loss uh, a provision in international agreements. So that if they suffer climate change uh, uh, losses, that's going to be quickly sort of uh, 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 paid back by by countries that are causing most of the climate change impact. Uh, that's gotten no traction whatsoever. There's been moments where it seemed close. But the second that's sort of passed, all of these renewable technologies are going to become much more uh, uh, economical, um, like on orders of magnitude more than any fossil okay. fuel. But without without the, the political wherewithal to actually properly price the products, uh, you get this, this sort of situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we've certainly seen this with the war in Ukraine, the disruption to access to Russian oil and and the whole issue of the extent to which Europe is dependent upon Russian natural, natural gas sort of brings to a the the kind of disruptions that we face because of our reliance on Fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, if if Europe were further along with renewables, the the impact would be slighter. So there's a there's a geostrategic element here, as well. Uh,
1: absolutely, and this is something that Europe's really emphasized in the uh, response to the Ukraine invasion. Uh, you've got uh, uh, infrastructure projects that were planned for and even quite far along that have been scrapped because they would have kept the country on uh, uh, Russia's energy uh, dependence. So you have a small country like Bulgaria, which gets almost 100% of their energy from Russia. And they've started significant uh, efforts to halt uh, expansion of fossil fuel industries and really shift quite rapidly to renewable energies. Uh, uh, You have Germany that's taken some significant steps this way. Denmark has taken significant steps this way in the past couple months. Uh, in a variety of issues. Uh, the European Union itself has decided that they're going to emphasize that green legislation is a security issue. So they're going to really ramp up the sort of understanding of this as a security issue. Uh, that's that's, that's going to offer some avenues for politically expedient action, but it's also got some, some problems. Uh, first off, it's got a short time frame. If the Ukraine situation fades in the background, the impetus might also fade away for some of the significant action. And secondly, it might ensure that we focus on the wrong mix. So we might focus on very narrow things that serve our geostrategic purpose, but not, might not serve the climatic uh, sort of impact. And uh, 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 the, the expert on this sort of trade off is, of course, Dr. Rio Francos, who really does emphasize that efforts to sort of engage in geostrategic competition. By onshoring lithium and rare earth metal processing in the United States to hedge against China's dominance of the industry um, is not going to lead necessarily to sustainable practices long term, and definitely not going to lead to uh, uh, sort of just outcomes that actually produce uh, 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 equitable situations out of climate disruption.
0: Yeah. One well, other I example that comes to me in in terms of uh, uh, dealing with Europe's dependence upon Russian natural gas. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, in the short term, uh, replacing that with LNG terminals in Europe, so that they could import natural gas from, well, the United States, which could, you know, ship it across the ocean in LNG containers. Uh, but but that could be really wrong-headed. In that, again, you're investing in, in new infrastructure that's going to keep us, in fact, dependent upon. Of fossil fuel when that, in a better approach, might be investing more of that in, in say, offshore wind that would replace the Russian oil. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, and I mean, this is what Manchin's asking from the Biden administration is really to create a uh, North Atlantic uh, LNG <laughs> uh, sort of corridor. Yeah. And so he's asking them to, to essentially create like a uh, most favored nation status with all NATO members to, to allow them to quickly get uh, uh, LNG from the United States. Uh, of course, West Virginia is a large producer of LNG, uh, directly sort of into it, as well as the, the sort of infrastructure. Uh, there's, the, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for that in Europe long term. They don't want to just change dependence upon Russia to dependence upon the United States. Um, and so... There, at least right now, the the discussion appears to be largely focused on renewables and and, and maintaining that sort of uh, emphasis. Uh, But once again, if you're taking a security focus to the problem uh, solely, that becomes much more reasonable in the the medium and long term to just shift who you're sort of dependent upon for your resources, uh, without, which which, which, uh, has significant costs.
0: Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about nuclear power because one of the things I've read recently is that uh, Germany a number of years ago opted to phase out its nuclear power plants, and I'm, I'm not sure whether or not that's complete yet, or they're on their way to. And that was seen as environmentally friendly. There's been a lot of discussion in the press that maybe that was a wrong-headed move, uh, that that in fact all that's done is th- that they in effect were were reducing their access to nuclear-generated nuclear electricity and replaced it with Russian natural gas electricity. And that probably, from the current standpoint, was a mistake. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, should, should we perhaps, uh, even those of us who are environmentally friendly, sort of set aside our concerns with nuclear power uh, until we can get uh, a development of, of other renewables?
1: Um, I'll I'll give my personal opinion in a second. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a major issue with, uh, 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 Europe in particular, uh, but also with other places like Japan and, and, uh, uh, China and India, where they're promoting nuclear as an ability to really be a, a, uh, a better bridge to renewables than is uh, uh, LNG or particularly than than coal or or oil. Um, And so developing world and particularly the Middle East has really uh, made nuclear power a major part of their energy mix going forward. In Europe, we got the divergent uh, sort of responses to Fukushima in 2011 with Germany deciding they were gonna get off of nuclear power entirely. And France deciding they were going to really uh, uh, commit to nuclear power, um, and so even the the, the recent election, like it, on energy issues, it was it was virtually the same. Uh, the only difference, that's a French election you're talking the, about. The French election, yeah. Right. Uh, Macron uh, uh, said he was going to do uh, nuclear and wind. And Le Pen said she was just going to do nuclear. But right. uh, there, there, there was an agreement on the importance of nuclear power going sort of forward there. Um And 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 many people think that France is making the mistake there. They're they're investing in in, in uh, efforts that are not going to achieve their climate goals. And they they've, they've uh, of all of Europe they've fallen almost the most behind of their their initial Paris sort of obligations. Right. Uh, as they are hoping that nuclear is going to be the the sort of savior that's going right. to finally get yeah. them off. And they haven't seen but, the results from that yet. Yeah, <laughs>
0: but there's a <laughs> distinction between investing in new nuclear power plants, as opposed to shutting down the existing plants. Yeah. And it seems to me that uh, perhaps the speed with which we shut down existing plants ought to be perhaps delayed until this renewable infrastructure is in place, uh, rather than rather than having to replace those nuclear plants with f- fossil fuel-generated electricity. Sure. Uh, I know uh, I recently Bill McGiven had a, article in the New Yorker in which uh, he he reversed himself. He had been a big advocate of of shutting down nuclear plants. And he said in the article, uh, he now believes that's a mistake that we should we should maintain existing nuclear infrastructure, though he's not advocating building new nuclear infrastructure, but just maintain what's existing uh, and phase those out at, at a point in the future when when, in fact, you don't have to replace that power with fossil fuels.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, that seems to be where the consensus position is at this point. The German Greens uh, have for decades had a zero nuclear position. And so they're somewhat the sort of aberrant movement here that has taken this position and has largely pushed it consistently across the board. most other countries in Europe are sort of adopting this approach of maintaining the existing ones, some expansion, and I mean France expanded last year. Um, uh, well, they, they 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 broke ground on the new expansion last year, um, and 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 sort of uh, uh, proceeding from that uh, uh, point. Uh, my position uh, uh, on, on, on these various costs uh, is similar to Bill McKibben's. Uh, uh, it was formerly against it, but now sort of saying that, that you sort of need these to, to uh, uh, be maintained. Uh, having said that, I think that national contexts really do play a key role in deciding this. And so if you have a good nuclear infrastructure and feel secure with it uh, uh, for various impacts that could occur, Uh, That's fine. If your national climate simply is not conducive to maintaining nuclear power, uh, then then you can transition a little more quickly. Um, But uh, 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 the real cost will be if uh, money that could go for renewable sort of transition goes to nuclear and renewables. That would uh, water down the transition that needs to occur.
0: Right. there's also a lot of talk about carbon capture technology uh, which seems to be i guess popular again from the fossil fuel industry who who rather than shut down the production of fossil fuel are saying we'll produce the fossil fuel we'll just capture it out of the atmosphere and put it away by some fancy technology. Does the report address that at all uh so it does it, it deals with both
1: climate cl- capture as well as geoengineering, which is a sort of next uh, well, I, it's not in the same category as as carbon capture. it's It's a uh, different set of sort of uh, efforts that will say, uh, we can't sort of stop, we can't engage in mitigation, so we're going to have to sort of solve it. The report is generally skeptical about these types of of efforts, which say, Mitigation is too far gone, uh, or it's too far gone to, to use mitigation effectively. So instead, we should do some alternative sort of approaches. Uh, carbon capture has some advantages. Uh, whether it could scale up to the size that it could really matter uh, is the real cost, because it's not just capturing uh, carbon. It's, it's where you put the carbon that you've actually captured. Uh, and there's all sorts of ideas about trapping it uh, uh, under uh Uh, the seabed or or, or, uh, um, creating caves that just sort of keep our carbon. Uh, uh, The the side impacts of that have not been fully sketched out. And so the report's quite consistent on, you know, some carbon capture works at small scales. The ability to scale it up has not been demonstrated whatsoever. Uh, Same thing with geoengineering, although the, the efforts appear to be quite skeptical at this point that geoengineering is even a reasonable sort of uh, uh, tool to have in the toolbox. And what is um,
0: geoengineering exactly? It,
1: it, it's not one thing. There's a whole host of, of different ways that we can essentially uh, uh, mitigate the impacts of climate change without, without uh, 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 mitigate the wrong word there, that we can reduce the impacts of, of climate change while not mitigating carbon emissions. And so, for example, uh, some of the ideas are um, uh, setting up uh, uh, mirrors to reflect back uh, the, the, the uh, sun's light, uh, whitening the clouds, so making the clouds oh, wider man. as a result of this, uh, and any number of other sort of uh, uh, ideas that are changing the climate to where we want it to, uh, treating the global climate like a thermostat. Um, there's been a lot of th- uh, thinking about this, but it appears that right now there's an emergent norm that is pushing against geoengineering as being part of the the, the efforts to sort of address this problem
0: and right, right again, that, that could divert resources from building renewables well uh, right. uh,
1: both both resources as well as attention because if you think yeah. you're gonna get some uh, solution later down where you right. whiten the clouds and escape it then the, the the pressure gets reduced a
0: lot yeah and I uh, uh, I've read about these lightning the clouds plans. Uh, I can imagine all kinds of unintended consequences that that we'd have to worry about. Um, uh, That that makes me nervous that uh, that 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 scale of of, you know, uh, manipulating the climate, weather. uh, Yeah. Who knows what kind of Harmful impacts might result from that.
1: Well, and once again, from a political science or IR perspective, there's accountability issues. If you if you do enough research that you find out there's a way to change the Earth's climate, who's going to stop one country from changing the climate to what they want, and then another country from changing right. the climate to the way they want? Uh, and then there's there's even uh, David Victor uh, hypothesized that you could get a terrorist that would actually go out in the the, the center of the Pacific Ocean and change the climate the way they wanted. And so y- there's, there's some, some severe democratic accountability uh, and agreement cost to, to geoengineering that uh, have made it uh, an idea that sort of percolated a couple of years ago, but I think it, it's being uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, decreased in its importance as we go on.
0: Right. Could we f- focus a little bit on the United that's States, that's States that's and, and the Biden, that's Biden that's administration? Right. Uh, Biden came in with a lot of uh, very strong rhetoric about finally getting the handle on climate change and uh, subsidizing really major initiatives in that area. Uh, how's the Biden administration done so far? Uh, I know there's been a lot of controversy over uh, the 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 barriers that Senator Manchin of West Virginia has put in the. In, in uh, w- the uh, Build Back Better uh, portion of of his environmental reports, uh, but but overall, what would be your assessment of how things are going?
1: Uh, so far, the the Biden administration has largely sought to let's see how I could say this uh, maintain sort of what they can maintain while waiting on legislation to solve it. And so they haven't opened more uh, 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 pipelines, significantly so. Uh, They've kept those uh, uh, down. They haven't expanded new oil leases, although they've increased a couple of those in the past couple of months, uh, but largely trying to keep it from making any permanent decisions. And once again, we've talked about growing the infrastructure, stopping growing the infrastructure in the the, the sort of year, year and a half that they've been in office.
0: it's a fossil fuel infrastructure. Absolutely. Right.
1: Um, while letting the, the, the sort of market resources and the the stuff that's already occurred on renewables just sort of play out. And so once again, renewable costs are going to continue decreasing. Uh, we're going to have uh, a, a larger share of the US uh, energy infrastructure from renewables this year than, than we've ever had before. And that's largely just stuff that's been uh, in the works for, for a while. Uh, but they're relying upon the legislation of the Build Back Better uh, initiative as well as some other uh, uh, sort of legislative efforts to really be the, 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 the key aspect that's gonna lead to this um, actually fulfilling our, our, our uh, obligations under the Paris Agreement, which uh, we're, we're behind on right now. Um, that might be smart politics, and once again, it's only the first year, uh, year and a half of the administration. Uh, But it has not led to any significant sort of changes. Um, But, I I mean, once again, there's reports out this week that there might actually be some climate legislation breakthrough on the the verge of occurring. Um, That's a long ways off still. (laughs) Uh, But at Mm -hmm. least they're continuing the pressure on working on it. The bigger concern might actually be the Supreme Court case in uh, February that was argued, the the, uh, West Virginia versus the EPA. Um, And it's really about whether the EPA can regulate uh, CO2 from from power plant generations. And West Virginia, as well as a number of other actors, sued saying the EPA can't. That's an extension of their executive power which the current Supreme Court seems fairly interested in, in, in these questions and taking them up. Um, yeah,
0: the, uh, the argument is there is that CO2 isn't really a pollutant, right? The yeah. EPA is, the Environmental Protection Act authorizes the EPA to regulate pollutants. And and the argument is whether or not that's going to be a classified can class CO2 as a, a pollutant. Uh, Which
1: I mean, it's, it's what we breathe out, so it'd be yeah, difficult to classify it as a right. pollutant. So in all instances, but yeah, yeah. yeah that, though that
0: though it depends on, it, you know, how broadly you conceptualize the idea of pollution, right? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, uh, and I can see some of our current justices running to their dictionaries, as they want to do, and uh, and uh, and that's really uh, well. Don't get me started on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Uh, and this legalistic approach to these issues that is probably not very constructive.
1: There are some interesting parts about this case that might complicate it from being a very simple ideological sort of reading of the text. Uh, First off is that most of the utilities actually supported the EPA. They actually came out and said, "We we want this to be regulated, we want it to be stable, we want to know what's going to happen, we don't want it to just change every administration. Uh, 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 widely. That doesn't allow us to plan. That doesn't allow us to, to, to organize. That doesn't allow us to make money. Uh, and the second thing is that Justice Kavanaugh actually took a, a, a different approach than he's taken in some of these other cases where he really focused on the question of whether Congress had rejected the action that the federal agency eventually took, the EPA. And so his questioning was really about whether Congress had Merely not taken action or had specifically rejected this, which might mean there is some room there for uh, 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 the EPA's ability to regulate, uh, to be maintained in this particular situation. Uh, having said that, if the, if the majority rules that the EPA is unable to do this uh, with the lack of other legislation coming out uh, it, it would make it very, very difficult for the the United States to reach our Paris uh, objectives at all. Right,
0: right. And, and it's just simply going to create an incentive for utilities just to burn more fossil fuel, right, if they're going to. Although, with, with the, the declining cost of renewables, uh, it might not be that have that much of an impact, though. Uh,
1: I mean, uh, natural gas would see a significant Na- benefit from right. this. Right,
0: natural <laughs> gas.
1: Um, but, yeah.
0: And then we're back to Senator Mansion and West Virginia natural gas so yes indeed there we go so uh, just uh, very you know very briefly there are also environment environmental impacts from switching to renewables uh, our colleague uh, uh, Theorio Francos has been studying uh, the the need for lithium a, a major component in the batteries that 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 uh, that would be used, say, in electric cars and 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 a storage device for lots of uh, renewable energy. Uh, but that 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 has economic costs. Does the report address any of that?
1: So it, it does deal with a lot of these, not in a uh, um, not in a, a a equal sort of uh, weight that it does to simply the the obligation to uh, introduce mitigation uh, efforts. Uh, but yeah, it deals with a lot of the trade-offs, and I mean, this is something that a lot of people have been focused on for a while, is the various trade-offs that a switched to renewables or nuclear power or any other mitigation efforts uh, really is going to introduce and, and that, that trade-offs are going to be both environmental as well as non-environmental. Um, the report identifies a whole host of these. The one that I'm most interested in because of my research on biodiversity Uh, is of course on the land use sort of uh, uh, transitions here. and So uh, the most significant one is is one of the oldest forms of renewable energy, which is hydroelectric power uh, or just hydropower. Um, The implications of this are significant, but uh, uh, trades off with a lot of land and ecosystems, uh, and significantly disrupts uh, rivers all around the world if you build significant amounts of dams uh, along the rivers. Uh, Same thing with wind power. Wind power requires a large sort of area. Uh, Oftentimes it's most efficient to have multiple wind turbines in the same area because that'll be the windiest sort of area and it allows you to ramp up production and ramp down production based upon demand a little easier. Um, And so there's a lot of costs with that with uh, both the ecosystems of those areas as well as bird flyways and stuff like that. Uh, All of this stuff works into the report uh, but once again, the largest impact is really a two-degree warming world, uh, which will cause far more extinction than, than wind turbines will cause, right. uh, and, and the disruption on rivers is going to be more significant from a two-degree warming world than it will be from yeah. the dams. And so, balancing those trade-offs um, is is a large part of the report. Yeah, but that, but again, that's
0: an interesting problem from a political perspective. That that you can argue that. Well, wind turbines are gonna result in a certain number of birds being killed, crashing into the, the whirling wind turbines, but that in fact, uh, more warming is gonna kill more birds than those wind turbines are. The political problem is, you know, a bird lying dead on the ground under a word turbine is a, is a very good anecdote <laughs> to generate a lot of, of concern and opposition. Yeah. And uh, and we have to deal with a lot of that in this area, right? That that there are the, these 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 uh, very uh, dramatic anecdotes that that politically can get in the way of making the kind of important policy decisions that need to be made.
1: Yeah, and absolutely, that's true. When you start thinking about NIMBYism, which is uh, not in my backyard sort right. of things. Um, there, there's a lot of great places for wind power that simply won't get wind turbines because people don't want them in their, in their backyard. They don't want them in their, their, mm-hmm. their area. They don't want to see wind turbines uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and as soon as you start getting some of these trade-offs that, that uh, uh, cause bird falls or, or other issues like that, uh, the local communities oftentimes get very upset because they appreciate the songbirds, they appreciate the, the, the sort of situation there and don't like seeing them right there in, in front of them. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's this, this uh, complex politics of, of, of nimbyism uh, on a, a, a much larger scale than we've probably seen before.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, any final thoughts on the impact of the war in Ukraine? We've mentioned it already. Uh, anything uh, that you'd want to add to how the war is going to, in fact, impact all of this? Uh...
1: Um, I, I mean, the impacts are going to be tremendous. Once again, fuel oil uh, heating increase of 70% in the United States is only the tip of the iceberg where you're going to see fuel increases uh in the developing world that are going to be very, very significant and really disrupt their entire economies. And so you're going to see some some very uh, uh, unstable and dangerous situations around the world as a result of this sort of a situation. The second thing you're going to get is you are going to get social movements that are recommitted to a uh, uh, um, the, the the green movement as a result of this. So you are going to get these movements that are going to take this moment and really push for green objectives. Um, I think they're going to be very successful in some cases. Uh, Germany looks like it's going to be a very, very successful movement uh, to really cause the country to, to transition. Uh, it's going to be less successful in other contexts. It's going to be a, a more restrained sort of political uh, uh, outcome. And I unfortunately think that's where the United States is likely to be. Um, where we're going to get an emphasis on natural gas as opposed to decarbonization. Um, But then on the sort of geopolitical level, uh, you are going to see Europe really coming together on a a significant decarbonization effort. Um, It looks like the United Kingdom is going to play an active role in that, even though, of course, they've left the the European Union uh, trade bloc. Uh, and if you get, uh, Germany, France, and the other large economies of the, the area on board, uh, you could see Europe, uh, uh, hit, reach its inflection point by 2025, uh, and maybe even, uh, uh, by 2030, very clearly on a downward trajectory, uh, that would be significant, uh, it would be absolutely a good sort of, uh, uh, path forward for other countries to sort of follow, uh. The co- it, go ahead. I'm and it
0: sorry, strikes me that uh, might even have an impact on American politics. That is, if the Europeans can demonstrate the economic benefits of this transition, and as, and as we've said before, if renewables are actually cheaper, it really makes more economic sense to invest in renewables. If, if the Europeans can, can demonstrate that, hey, this really helps our standard of living uh, to do this, uh, people in the states might notice that.
1: Yeah, and, and, and we were talking about anecdotes earlier. There's a lot of anecdotes coming out of Europe. Uh, United Kingdom went a whole month without coal power uh, last year. Um, that's a
0: significant transition. Right, right.
1: That, that, that's big.
0: Yeah, it's about, um, think about the history of England, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the coal mines you know, of England. And
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, being up in Glasgow, I, I, I think, really made that point quite clear <laughs> of, yeah. of, of the history of the situation. Uh, Poland uh, has long been a stalwart on coal power. It looks like they're doing a significant transition away. Um, So, yeah, you're going to get a really, really big uh, uh, transition. And once again, it's going to be both a demonstration effect for the United States, but also it's going to just further sort of change the economies. And so the the economics of the situation are going to continue changing. Uh, One of the side agreements in Glasgow was by... uh, 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 car manufacturers to commit to all-electric vehicle uh, uh, fleets uh, by 2040. And and a lot of the European brands joined this. Volvo was part of it. Mercedes-Benz yeah. was part of it. Uh, the surprising one, I think, for a lot of people was Ford. And Ford came along precisely because they were wanting to take part in this new economic sector that, that uh, the Europeans right. will seem to be dominating. And, so and
0: they went to market Ford trucks, truck. trucks in Europe, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, that's... That's very interesting. Well, uh, great, uh, Professor Stevens. You certainly enlightened us, I think, about these reports. Uh, Any final thoughts before we wind things up here?
1: Uh, Yeah, and and this is going to be a somber note, uh, but that's all right. Um, uh, A couple days ago, somebody went to the Supreme Court building and uh, 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 engaged in self-immolation as a protest technique. Uh, uh, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, what he was protesting was climate inaction, and really wanting to inspire everybody to to take climate change seriously. Uh, unfortunately, through his death, um, there's there's lots of people that I've I've been reading about and hearing their sort of comments that think the the fight against climate change is hopeless and that we've reached the end endpoint. Uh, from this most recent report, as well as Dr. Rio Franco's research. Uh, My own research, Dr. Affinier's research, uh, I can tell you quite conclusively that we have not reached that point at all. Uh, The the, the fight on climate change is ramping up. It's going to be very serious over the next decade, uh, but there's absolutely no reason to be hopeless whatsoever. Indeed, there seems to be a new effort to decompose the climate change problem. It seems gigantic. It seems like it's about the entire world heating up uniformly and out of control as uh, uh, Russian oligarchs have uh, uh, yachts that have 22,000 tons of CO2 per year, while the average American has 20. Um, And so it's just simply a hopeless, hopeless challenge that we can't possibly stand against. There's lots of efforts on lots of different levels that are aimed at making climate change a smaller problem so that we can directly impact upon it And that includes students at college campuses, that includes uh, people in their own backyards, and that includes communities and cities which are emphasizing climate resilience in their short-term, medium-term, and long-term planning. Uh, And you're really seeing this take off uh, around the world. It's happening in Rhode Island, it's happening in Massachusetts, uh, it's happening everywhere. Um, And so it's a really, really positive sort of time. Everybody can get involved in it, and I I do want to leave everybody with the, the statement that uh, uh, um, getting involved is excellent, uh, but there is no reason to be hopeless about climate change at this point.
0: Well, thanks very much for those inspiring words, Professor Stevens, and, and thanks so much for being with uh, here with us. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back in the coming months uh, as this story develops. Uh, next Perfect. time I'm
1: coming, I'm coming because we've solved climate change. That's, that's <laughs> okay. the, the deal I'm making. Right <laughs> right, next year. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be excellent.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And thanks uh, once again to our student producers, Isabella Fernandez and Sienna Strickland, uh, who uh, are making this podcast uh, sound good and uh, getting it out there into the world. And thanks again to the uh, Providence College Office of Marketing Communications, Joe Carr and Chris Judge for their continuing support of the podcast. And thanks to our listeners for faithfully following Beyond Your News Feed.